be seated. What a full Sunday we have. It's, we always rejoice in having baptisms, and it was great to hear stories of a, a marriage restored from the gospel, or because of the gospel, and a, a young life saved. Next week we'll have at least another baptism as well. These are exciting days at Oak Park as the Lord is giving us some fruit from our labors. And just a reminder that all the work is really carried by the Word of, the God, of God. The power is there. And so all the more we want to be a people of the Word and distributing the Word so that God's Word can do its work. So with that being said, let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And yes, we are still on the same uh, section of Scripture looking particularly, what does Jesus mean by laying up treasure in heaven? But I'm going to have us read verses 19 through 34 again. We'll just kind of still stay in, or 19 through 34, but we'll stay within 19 through 24 mainly today. And then next Sunday, Lord willing, we will get to verse 25 and following. So if you would, open up your copy of God's Word. If you don't have a copy, um, we can get you one at the end of the service, but the words will be up on the screen. <clears throat> Here's what Jesus says to those who have ears to hear. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for he'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
As we've been considering this issue of possessions over the last uh, few Sundays, we've seen that God's Word has a lot to say about money, has a lot to say about possessions, and most of what the Bible has to say about it is actually warning us and guarding us about loving it, about being devoted to it, about seeking it above all. This is what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. He says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Do you believe that? Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. He goes on, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you see the love of riches like that? Do you see the pursuit of riches as a dangerous snare for your soul? Do you have any concept of what that pursuit can do? The book of Proverbs is filled with similar warnings. Listen to Proverbs 15, 27. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. Again, Proverbs 23, 4. Do not toil, that is, do not work, do not not give your labor to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist it, to resist. It's not why you work, in other words. If you're working to get rich, you need to desist that. Proverbs 28, 20, a faithful man will abound with blessings, but, listen to the contrast, whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Man, why didn't they tell us that in in Economics 101? When I was at the university, because that's not the message I heard. I heard, do these things and you can be rich and succeed in all your wildest dreams. Jesus goes on to say the same thing. Jesus himself warns his disciples and he says, truly I say to you. When he says truly, that means listen up. I have something important for you to hear. Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Only with difficulty. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus say it is with great difficulty that people like us will enter the kingdom of heaven? Because I got news for us, we are vastly wealthy. But yet it is difficult for us people like us, people in our economic standing to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why why does he say that? Well, he he actually explains it elsewhere in Matthew, and and, and he likens it to, in one of his parables, to some seed of the gospel, the, the, the word of truth, landing as like seed in the midst of thorns. He goes on and he says this in Matthew 13. He says, some seed... 
Think of preaching the gospel, landing on people's hearts. He's analogy of, of seed being thrown on the ground. Some seed is thrown among thorns. And he says, this is the one, this is the person who hears the word, but what happens to them? Why does the word not take hold and they enter the kingdom? Because the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. That's what he says. That's what Paul's getting at. Some have wandered away from the faith. They look like they grew, but the weeds, the cares of the world, the pursuit of riches, the pursuit of all that I can gather in this world chokes the gospel out. And when it comes down to who will you follow, you will remember what Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Because where your treasure is, that's who your real God is. And if you have pursued the abundance of riches, and I'm not saying that you have them, I'm saying you pursue them, well, there you will have your treasure, where moth and rust destroy. Despite these warnings, however, there are lots of them in Scripture. I've just given us a, a quick snapshot. We also find exhortations to use our possessions for kingdom work. We find examples of, of those who follow after the Lord who are, have abundant riches. Some of us in this room have more riches than others. That doesn't mean you're in sin. Scripture doesn't say you can't have riches. It's a love of them that it gets after. And so there's actually positive exhortations. And we see that, it, that it's not a sin to have money but rather it is sinful to love it. In fact, Jesus tells us to wisely strategize in how we use our wealth. Did you know that? He uses, he tells us, those of us, what we have, and the more you have, the more opportunity you have to strategize for the kingdom. He tells us to, to strategize, be smart with our funds for kingdom purposes. He, he says this in, in Luke chapter 16 contrasting Christians from those who are unbelievers. He says, the sons of this world, that's those who do not know the Lord, the sons of this world are more shrewd. They're smarter. They invest their money strategically. They do something with their money. That's what he's getting after. In dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. It's almost a challenge here. They're planning. They're trying to do things but to preserve themselves in this generation. But he goes on. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Huh? Use that means, which can lead you in a snare and temptation. This is what the world longs for. Use that unrighteous wealth to make friends for eternity. So that, he says, when it fails. He doesn't say if it fails. It doesn't matter how much money you have, it will fail you. Steve Jobs was one of the richest men in the world, but it failed him on his deathbed. And he had all the means to save his life, but it failed. When it fails you, Jesus says, if you've invested in the kingdom those friends that you have won with the gospel and the means of your possessions, they will receive you into the eternal dwelling. Do you think about it like that? We, 
The sons of this world use their wealth to accumulate friends for themselves in this generation. Look at what I have. Come hang out with me. Jesus says, well, why don't you use and be more shrewd than them and invest in kingdom work so that you'll have friends for eternity. We strategize in lots of ways, and Jesus says, why don't you strategize for the kingdom? That's what he's getting at. And this principle is illustrated in the Good Samaritan who sees uh, uh, one in need, his neighbor, and he, he has compassion on him. He binds his wounds with, with what resources? His resources. He uses his own animal to, to transport the man. He uses his own money to buy him a place to stay. Or I consider Lydia in Acts chapter 16, who, who the text tells, Luke tells us, she was a seller of purple goods. Now, to us, that, that doesn't really mean much. But a seller of purple goods was one who was dealing with luxury fabrics. She, was, she had her store on Beverly Hills. She was, she was in a market with the rich. She was making lots of money because she was providing products for the rich and wealthy. She had a business selling luxury fabric. She was rich. But after coming to know Christ... She tells Paul and his missions team, from now on you stay at my house. And from what we can tell is that the church that was planted in Philippi then began to meet at her house. And she used her riches for new kingdom investment. So it's not about if you have riches. It's how you use them. Where's your treasure? And so what I want us to see this morning is that while there is a great temptation, and all of us feel it, don't we? All of us feel it, to love riches, possession, and accumulation. That while we feel that temptation, Christ calls us to redirect that love. Redirect it heavenward and use the possessions He's entrusted to us for His kingdom purposes. This is what He's getting after when He says, Do not store up treasure on earth but rather store up treasure in heaven. He's calling us as his disciples to have a different perspective of our possessions. He's calling us to have a kingdom prioritization. And our earthly concerns are secondary. But here's what I want you to notice, just considering this whole text before we dive in. He doesn't say your earthly concerns of no, of our, no importance, right? I think some of us hear this as... That just mean I just need to give it all up and just live on the streets, I guess. Is that what Jesus wants for me? Is that what he said? No, I know your needs. And I care for the birds of the air and the flower of the field. They have exactly what they need. And guess what? I care about you more than them. And doesn't he always supply your abundant needs? He does. He always goes above and beyond. And yet we seem to think he's stingy. Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, you won't invest in the kingdom because you've got all these worries, and you think I won't care for you. So when we hear this, I think some of us, our knee-jerk reaction is, all right, Jesus, you just expect me to give up all my dreams, all my aspirations, have no ambition in life, and just sit here and just die. Is that what it sounds like maybe to you? 
Do you expect me, Jesus, just to, to right, have this and no more? And these are actually questions of doubt, aren't they? They're questions that express an insecurity in actually knowing our Heavenly Father and who He is. To actually show what Jesus gets at in verse 30 when He says, Oh, you of little faith, you don't trust me. You don't. Because you're concerned about all these things, you won't even consider what I have to say. And so we hold back because we believe that to invest in the kingdom would mean our lives would be miserable, pathetic, and meager. Isn't that your fear? When you hear these last couple of sermons, you've thought, if I do what Jesus says, I'll have a miserable life. It's going to be pathetic, right? This is meager. This stinks, right? I don't like that at all. And he says, then you've misunderstood because you still think your joy is found in earthly possessions. You still think that's where the money is. That's where the goods are. That's where everybody who's going to be something for eternity really is. And he says it's worthless. And yet I'm not telling you you won't have anything. Seek first. That presumes there's a second, right? Seek first the kingdom and all these things that you seem to be worried about. I got your back. That's what Jesus says. I've got your back. But the issue will be, do you trust me, he says. When we think like this, there's another parable. You know the parable of the talents? If you've been in church long enough, you're familiar with there's It's a parable that Jesus says, and a master gives, gives talents, and it's really kind of an obscure item that he gives, which I think is intended for us to think multiplicity beyond our riches, but includes our riches. And I think when we, we begin to pile up all these questions that keep us from doing anything because, well, I need to know everything, Jesus, before I trust you and give you first priority. Well, we're like the servant who goes and buries his talent in the ground. What is he doing? He's a hoarder. We've seen those shows on TLC. If you make it on TLC, you got problems. That's, that's what that, that means. That's not an ambition in life. You're weird. That's what that means. <laughs> You're the hoarder. He's on TLC. And when the master comes back, he says, why didn't you do something with what I gave you? And his words are so telling. Because I don't think you're a good master. That's what he says to him. That's because I don't think you're good. And that's why you don't do anything with your funds either. And you continue to pile them up for the things that will perish. Because at the end of the day, we don't believe he's good. We're just like the hoarder. And so this morning, I want to help us to continue to think carefully. That's really where I'm pushing us. I'm not trying to put a big guilt trip. I just want us to wake up and think before we just go and live by our gut and live by our impulses and live by our passions. I've got it. Why can't I get it? I've got the funds. Why can't I do? And I think that's our default drive. And I want to just shake us up a little bit and say, are you thinking about 
what it looks like to build treasure in heaven? Are you, are you even considering it? And so to help us think more carefully about what this looks like to live a life that prioritizes the kingdom, what it looks like to have God as our master rather than possessions, verse 24. I have three questions for us. We only got to the first one last week. First one is, is my life ordered in such a way that I'm even able to give and give generously? Second question, is my life ordered in such a way that I'm able to pray desperately? And third, is my life ordered in such a way that I'm able to fast denyingly? We're going to consider the second question now. So you can skip to the slide. I know I had other slides up there, but i got to finish this sermon this week. Am I able to pray desperately? So those of you, I'm done kind of with the pocketbook stuff. I'll just go at another angle, okay? It's the same principles, just a different angle. When we're living to build treasure on earth... To accumulate for ourselves, that is, to serve the master of possessions, I would argue that we are unable to do what Jesus says in verses 5 through 15. So giving was verses 1 through 4. If we're building treasure on on earth, we're prioritizing wealth. Verses 5 through 15 tells us that we're prioritizing our time. And what Jesus says, I want you to prioritize prayer over your time. It's the same type of concept, same budgeting purposes, if you will. How you budget your money will determine and show who your God is. Well, how you budget your time will also do the same. Are you able to pray desperately? Why would I say that? Why would I say if you love The treasures of earth, you won't be able to do that. Well, there's a few reasons. First, at the end of the day, we lack trust. We deceive ourselves into thinking the best use of my time. Now notice, Jesus doesn't expect you to stay in your home and never do anything and just pray all day. No time for sleep, no time for anything. He doesn't say that about money. He's not telling that about your time. But really, that's not the issue, is it? We got time for everything but this. We believe it would be better use of my time to work more, to sleep more, to binge more, to play more, just to do more. And just like our budgets, we spend all our time on what we think matters most. And then if we have extra, which we all know that rarely happens, We'll spend it asking God to give us more of our selfish desires, right? We don't have time to extol him, to pray your kingdom come, your will be done. Forgive me of my debts. Lead us not to temptation. We spend all our time on verse 11. And actually, we want a little bit more than our daily bread, to be honest, right? I don't have time to pray. I got too many things to do. Okay. Well, we know where your treasure is. That's what Jesus says. There's another reason we're not able to pray. We've we've trained our hearts to be entitled rather than grateful. We've so given ourselves. It's just, we have bought in hook, line, and sinker to, yes, I should live in the greatest abundance that I possibly can. 
I think that's the default message of the world, and I think most of us buy into it. Say, yep, I deserve it. I've worked for it. It's mine. I can do with whatever I want, and I will do whatever makes me happy. And so we even joke about kind of our, uh, our, our, our first world problems, right? I mean, we, we bring a lot of trouble on ourselves now, and we freak out if I go anywhere and I can't get the Wi-Fi password. One of the, you know, one of the things that I get asked here, not the only thing, but one of the things I get, hey, hey, what, what's the Wi-Fi password? Like you're thirsty and you're dying. Well, I got to get Wi-Fi. Or, or we go out somewhere and does this place have cell phone service? Because I have got to know everything that's going on all the time. We joke about our first world problems. We say, oh, first world problems. We act like we're going to die if our AC goes out. I mean, the AC here goes out every summer, every VBS. It happens. Just know next year it's going to go out. That's why we budget or we have savings for those types of things. But it will go out next year, second week of July. It will go out. And you will see panic upon all faces. It's like total recall, Arnold Schwarzenegger, we got no air in here. We're going to die. <laughs> we come back from our vacations and we're looking for sympathy. I just need, I just need rest from my vacation. First world problems, right? We live so entitled lives. And when we really think about it, we're all laughing because we're like, yep, I've done all that. It's pathetic, right? I mean, it's like, uh, give me a break. We live entitled lives. And for this reason, we're, are we ever really thankful? When you gather around your dinner table, you say, thank you, Jesus, for giving us this food today, for giving me the health to sustain the, the stamina to do my job, for giving me these things so that we could eat today, or do we just presume? And so we don't pray. We don't give thanks. There's a third reason we're unable to pray. It's because we're not aware of our desperate need of God's grace. We're not aware of our desperate need of God's grace. I think most of our urgent needs, we think our most urgent needs are time and money. I've already said that. I need those things. I don't need God's grace. Now, we wouldn't say that. We're too good of... Bible students to say that, but we do that, right? These two items are our most precious commodities. I can't do that. It takes my time. I can't serve you. It takes my time. I can't be really involved in the church because that takes my time, right? I can't pray every day. Goodness, who has time for that? But the one who's self-aware, who understands they must seek God in prayer, asking Him and pleading with them, verse 13 of the Lord's Prayer, lead me not into temptation. What's the temptation in this case? Well, think about the temptation of riches. Do you pray, Lord, please protect me from covetous eyes? Today, because I'm going to want it all today. We'll only pray like that if we're desperate enough and see the danger of it. But I don't think we see the danger. Look, I'm not trying to beat us up or guilt us. I'm not. 
Rather, I'm trying to show us we, we need to be more contemplative than we are. We need to think deeply. What is Jesus saying here? And if it is so important, why do I not think it's that important? Have you ever wondered, why are the warnings in Scripture there? Because I'm susceptible to not listen to them. But I think we think, I don't have a problem with that. Or, I got a problem, so does everybody else. It's not a big deal. And we don't realize what that is doing to our heart. How deep the darkness is, as Jesus says. We are distracted by so many things, aren't we? Distracted. First world problems. Problems we bring upon ourselves. And I just want us, as your pastor... I want this for my own life. I want this for my family's life. That we would just become aware of the temptations that are there and that we'd start to pray. Lead us not to temptation. Deliver us from evil. I want us to start to say, all right, my heart's not there, Jesus. I love my stuff. I just want us to to confess that and say, change my desires, Jesus. Will you pray that? That's just, want us to entry level here. I love my stuff, and I want you to show me what this actually looks like, and I want to think about this more every day that I live. But I fear that we will leave here today so consumed with whatever plans that we have I know football started this weekend, and I love football. And some of us will be so consumed about how we can get to where we need to go so that we can kill three, four, five hours of our time. For at the end of the day, we know is worthless. And I'm not trying to break guilt on you. I watched football yesterday. But I fear we're so consumed with ourselves that we can't even fathom praying God's kingdom come. Your will be done, not mine. We're too self-consumed to ever pray that, I think. And so my jealous desire for you is that you'd be able to regularly pray Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Listen to this. It's not on the screen. Proverbs 30, 8 and 9. This is a prayer. Give me neither poverty. I think we'd all say amen to that one. But what about the other one? Nor riches. God, don't give me riches. Would you pray that? I don't want poverty, Lord, nor the riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Notice he's praying. You know what I need, Lord. I'm going to pursue, but here's what I'm asking. Guard me from going to the left hand of poverty. Guard me from going to the right hand of riches. Give me what's needful for me today. Give us our daily bread. Why on earth would we pray like that? Why wouldn't I pray, Lord, give me that job. Give me that promotion. Give me more, more, more. Well, he goes on and he says, lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? That doesn't mean he won't give you a promotion. That doesn't mean he won't exceed your needs. 
But do you fear that you might be so successful in the things of this world that you would deny who the Lord is? Because that's what it can do to our heart. And the scripture actually says it will do if you love it. If that's your purpose in life, to live for those things, you will be full. And you'll say, I don't need the Lord. You might not verbalize it, but your life will. On the other side, Lord, I don't want to be poor. That's I can't meet my needs. And why doesn't he not want to be poor? Because I may steal and profane the name of my God. I might take matters into my own hands because I'm so desperate for what I need that I will sin against you to get it. And actually, both sides are doing a very similar thing. Do you ever pray, don't give me what I want? Because if I had it, I won't be desperate for you. Have you ever thought like that? Along the same lines, there's another question. And I think this this question helps us train ourselves uh, toward this. Have I ordered my life in such a way that I'm able to fast denyingly? Am I able to fast denyingly? Let's be honest here. Fasting is not fun, right? Fasting seems stupid. Fasting seems absolutely pointless. It has no place or purpose in a person's life if you're living for this world. Why on earth? Have you ever thought about this? Why why on earth does Jesus mention fasting? No, verse 16. And when you fast, all these things are when, not if. He assumes this is part of our our walk with following, following him. Assumes these are our elements, but I, I think most of us don't really know why on earth would I ever fast? Why, why would we do that? Why on earth would you ever choose to go without when you can have, right? Why would you do that? And I'm not talking about I've decided to eliminate soft drinks from my diet or I'm going to eliminate cake and ice cream and candy because I want to keep my waistline in in check. I'm not talking about that type of, no, let's assume you don't have that problem. You got a high metabolism and Jesus says fast. Why would you do that? Why would you purposely go without a meal? This is why. Because I want to learn what it means to deny myself. Anyone who wishes to follow after me must what? Deny himself. Deny himself. Why on earth would you want to deny yourself? Do you see how countercultural this message is? Some of us say, yeah, no thanks. Well, he who will save his life in this world will lose it. Why would you want to deny yourself? Why would you want to make fasting a regular part of your walk with the Lord. Because we recognize the sinful cravings of our heart and we want to gain mastery over them. So let me unpack this a little bit. Fasting, verses 16 through 18, Jesus talks about it, assumes this will be part of our piety, just like giving will be and praying will be. There's more than these three, but it's interesting he brings these three up, which I think are particular to revealing where our treasure is. They do that. 
And fasting is one way to exercise dominion over your cravings. Fasting is the discipline of casting your life under the lordship and care of your heavenly Father. So when you fast, listen, you're training yourself to trust that Jesus is more necessary to you than your daily food. Sounds like someone's already been there, done that, right? Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I think we'd all say, yep, amen, but do we live like that? Do we really believe it? And fasting actually says, I'm, I'm going to put that in practice today. Now notice, this is the same with money, same with prayer. Jesus isn't saying starve yourself to death for the kingdom of God. That's what we hear about the money one. He means throw it all away, might as well light it on fire, I have a miserable life. Well, is that what he means by fasting? No. He assumes you'll stop fasting and then you'll, you'll eat again. Is that what he means by prayer? That you somehow lock yourself in the prayer closet and you never come out and we just find you one day like a mummified, in your knee, prayer position, fold, folded up or crossover. You, you decide. That's not what he's talking about. But we bring it to this great extreme that means we won't do it. We pile up all these doubts, all these questions, and we, we, in the end, we don't even obey. Fasting is training yourself to trust that Jesus is more necessary to you than your daily food. You're training yourself to trust my life, though I feel like it, I know my life is not sustained by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And it drives you to it. It drives you. Actually, fasting drives you to pray. Help me, Lord. Fasting is actually the means of learning true contentment, self-denial, and experiencing true dependence upon God's sustaining grace. And so here's what I want to encourage you. Do you have a place for fasting in your walk with Jesus? Not to earn His favor, no, to, to experience Him more. By incorporating fasting into your life, you'll discipline yourself for godliness and grow in your ability to resist temptation. That's the connection I want you to see. This isn't about building merits. It's about training yourself to have mastery over your passions and your cravings. That's what it's about. And if you have lived your life with absolutely no restraint, well, then how on earth do you think you're going to resist temptation to sin? It's like the person who says, I'm going to run the marathon, whatever marathon comes up next in Louisville, but I haven't run a lick in 15 years. Well, you ain't running that marathon, I promise you. You're going to die. <laughs> but some of us think, I can live and I can be full. When temptation comes, I'll restrain. No, you won't. No, you won't. Because nothing else in your life have you restrained yourself. When we're tempted, those longings for sin, I want you to think about this, those longings for sin are as strong as, they, as your longings for food when you're hungry. Every fiber in your being says, I want that and I need that. Recently, I... I was fasting, and I walked into the snare of the devil, the kitchen. <laughs> and not only was I walking into the kitchen, 
right there on a platter was the one last slice of Lillian's birthday cake. And it says, come to me, and I will satisfy your desires. And I walked by that and said, no, no, no. I wanted it. My mouth started to drip. My stomach, literally, I could hear it. Everything in me was like, consume this cake. In the same way when the tempter comes, this is how it feels, right? When the tempter comes, it entices us with the deceitfulness of riches. We, we see that. I want that. The praises of men, some of us, we crave it. We crave it, don't we? The adulterous man or woman, every fiber in my being wants to be with that person. It's my identity. So is the cake on the platter. Or vengeance when we're wrong. Some of us just have to get back. And it will burn us up inside. And we just feel it. And it's interesting that the false teachers are those who satisfy their stomachs is the analogy it's given. Why? They have no restraint. They never learned discipline. When temptation comes, we feel like we cannot live without that which is calling our name. It's on the inside of us. And every sin is just like that. And it all calls out to us and says, if you will feast on me, I will satisfy. And that's the lie of the evil one. It's the same lie he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden where their eyes caught it and it looked good to eat. Listen, now I'm not saying don't go to lunch today, but if you can train yourself to deny your cravings for food, I'm going to skip a whole day, once a week, or once a month. I, I don't know. You need to satisfy that in your own mind with the Lord. What does that look like? But if you don't have a plan, you'll never do it. If you can train yourself to deny your cravings for food and depend upon God's sustaining grace, then you can train yourself by God's grace to deny your sinful cravings when they come. It's the same discipline. Because you have to turn to him and say, you are more important to me than that. Do you get that? I don't get many nonverbals here today. In other words, you're training yourself not to be mastered by earthly things. There's two masters. And fasting builds the spiritual discipline of prayer and denial of self so that when the passions of the flesh begin to rage within you and the tempter comes and seeks to devour you, you have the stamina and the strength of faith to withstand his schemes. You'll actually know how to depend upon his grace. That's what, why he puts that in there. And he moves right into where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think for most of us, we don't even give a thought about it. I'm hungry, I want, I get. We live like that because we can. And that's the deceitfulness of riches. And so Jesus is putting in practices that actually drive us to the foot of the cross. 
Why don't we live like this? Why don't we live or think like this? Well, we live like we're not at war. Like the world, it's not our enemy. It's our friend, right? And the evil one, he's not really out to devour us. And I think most of us live as if it's peacetime. There's no enemies. It's feast time. And I'm going to get my fill now. But the Scripture tells us actually the opposite, doesn't it? It tells us actually you are at war. It's not a battle of flesh and blood, but the principalities of the air. Do you believe that? Do you believe you are at war? And the world... He is no friend of yours. It's no friend of yours. Because why? Because it lies in the power of the evil one. That's what John tells us. And that evil one seeks to devour you. And the main way the tempter seeks to deceive us is if he can get us to believe, this is back to the talent and the hoarding, If he can get us to believe this lie, God is not a good father to you. Jesus, he will not secure and save you. He will not hold you fast. He does not love you. And if you live for him, you prioritize the kingdom, I assure you he will not care for you. But I will. That's his game plan. And the whole world system, everything that comes through the radio, the messaging, the education, everything is built. The whole culture is moving and says that lie. You just watch it. And so often, here's my fear, we just drink it up without a thought. It's the evil one devouring us. We have no thought for it. We just say it's all good. Bring it, bring it, bring it. But Jesus says the opposite. He says, open up your eyes. Do you see this world? Moth and rust are destroying. Does it ever really satisfy you? Then why, if it does, why do you keep going back to it? This world, it's falling apart, and it never brings you lasting satisfaction, does it? But Jesus says, come to me. This is my kingdom. A kingdom that will not be shaken. If you come, I will give you rest. Rest for your weary soul. Because I have washed all your sins away. If you will trust me, I will wash all your sins away. And you can come and you can inherit this kingdom that will not disappoint. Come to me. Give your life for the kingdom. And you'll have eternal life with me. So what does that require? It requires trust, doesn't it? Who do we believe? The ruler of this world or the creator of this world? Who do you believe? And that's why Jesus turns to verse 25. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Because living like this, you're going to be forced to make a decision. And most of us don't want to be forced to make that decision. 
And we'll look at that next week and look, what does it mean then to trust? Why is he a good father? This will be all positive next week. Well, I'll tell you, we're going to look at eight reasons that the father is good. And you can trust him. And you can give your life to Jesus and know it will be secured forever. Let's pray.